This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz, and I'm really uh, excited to be talking about the importance of language in statutes. Uh, you know, I really um, think that um, language and statutes is a lot like poetry. My wife is a poet. She's a copy editor. And so language is real important to her. And, um, you know, when I read her poetry, every word matters. You know, prose, you know, not every word matters as much. Cases are are more like prose, and and legal opinions in cases are more like prose. Sometimes judges will put stuff in a a case that really isn't on point. But the statute, we need to look at the language. And so today we're going to talk about how we interpret those statutes and, uh, and, uh, you know, what courts look at to interpret statutes and how important they are. Uh, they really make up most of the law in the United States, although there is also a great deal of regulatory law and administrative law. But those, those uh, that regulatory law is usually uh, authorized by legislative enactments. So we're going to spend some time with that. But I, I think we decided we we're going to have a little fun first. That's right. But wait a minute. You just rocked my world with uh, legal issues as poetry. I like that. And m- maybe if we got our listeners to think about it that way, the law and law issues wouldn't be as scary or as something to fear, but something to delve into and uh you know, get excited about. Yeah, let's have some fun. You know, there's, uh, I remember we bought the off-brand cereal boxes when the kids were little, and instead of a prize on the back, it would have some kind of game or something you could read the back of the cereal box. And there was always the funny laws in each state. So let's, let's talk about that for just a little bit. What's one that you found interesting? You know, well, so, yeah, there, is, there are some funny laws in the United States. You kind of wonder what the legislatures were thinking, and they, they exist in every state. You have these weird laws. But one, for example, in Virginia, uh, it's illegal to hunt uh, or any wild uh, bird or animal, including a nuisance species, on Sundays. However, it is permissible to kill raccoons. And I, I wonder what the legislators were thinking. Maybe the raccoons celebrate a different Sabbath. Uh, I don't know. I mean, so why, you know, I'm not sure why raccoons were, were uh you know, singled out, you know, for the one animal it's, it's okay to kill. So um, on a Sunday. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there's something going on in the legislature. Somebody has an idea. They present it. Um, it gets enough support in the legislature. Uh, there must have been a reason, maybe a compelling reason. And they, they enact this law. One of my favorites was, and this comes to when I grew up as a little kid. Um, when I grew up, I thought, quicksand was going to be a much bigger deal because, I don't know, and the Bermuda Triangle, I thought it would be a much bigger deal than it is now. But in Samarian County, Washington, they passed a law in 1969 deeming the slaying of Bigfoot 
to be a felony and punished by five years in prison. But then I guess in a way to uh, make themselves seem less bizarre, the law was later amended and designated the word Bigfoot as an endangered species. So that's where they use the the language, you know, Everybody, most everybody knows what Bigfoot is, but then they took that word and gave it a definition of endangered species. It's, it is amazing. I get, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of talk goes into these things. And, you know, we, we, we look at our legislation as being important and dealing with important issues. Uh, and, you know, that somebody in the legislature there, or actually that was, that sounded like a county ordinance. Uh, decided that that was important. You know, one of, one of my uh, favorites in nearby Louisiana um, is uh, you, 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 shouldn't avoid, you shouldn't wrestle a bear in Louisiana because Louisiana law states that individuals involved in bear wrestling matches defined as a match or contest between one or more persons and a bear for purposes of, of fighting or engaging in physical altercation are guilty of bear wrestling, which is kind of seems obvious. I know they used to at fairs. Uh, you, you could fight the bear and wrestle the bear. I have a good friend who has a great story about his time trying to wrestle the bear, and he could, you could win a hundred dollars if you stayed three minutes in the ring with a bear. And he was fine until uh, about ten seconds left, and then they rang a bell, and that's when the bear woke up and just knocked him out of the ring. So I guess they don't want that happening in Louisiana, which makes sense. I, I understand we have a caller. I'm sorry. I'm no, 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 no. That's up. fine. Um, but there are. The bear crossing signs on the interstate on I-20, you see those whenever whenever we're going that way. So Louisianans take their bears seriously. We'll go to Joseph, who's Colden, from Mobile. Uh, Joseph, thanks for being part of In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or Thank question? You. Well, uh, during that last Hurricane Zeta, there's a tree that fell over from my neighbor's yard onto my house. I mean, it's a, it's a very tall tree and it damaged the house and also I need to get that tree out of out of the way <laughs> so who is responsible I mean aren't they responsible uh, to do the work to, uh, to to restore everything the way it should be I mean the people next door you know, I, I can't give you specific advice because I didn't. I can't. I don't know where the tree was or anything like that. But I do think uh, that would be the right thing to do. Obviously, it wasn't their fault, but it was. It was no, their no, tree. It wasn't their fault. Um, yeah. I you know I would um, I would check first of all also your homeowners association. You're not your homeowners, but your homeowners insurance too. I don't but have insurance. I don't have uh, insurance. Um, you know, I I then would I would talk to a lawyer. I would talk to my na your neighbor first because they may be willing to help. Uh, and do it and, deal, and help you deal with it. Well, I That's did, and he said he'll do it, but he 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 hasn't even even started. You know, and I need to get that done. Now, well, what he I've said done, he'll do it. What I've done, I, I called uh, a contractor to do it, and he told me how much it would cost. And uh, so I've got that already. Maybe I'll get another uh, uh, estimate from somebody else too, and uh, and then. Go from there, and then if he doesn't, if he doesn't do it, then uh, am I able to take him to court to collect? And how much yeah. time do I have to give him? How much time do I have, do I need to give him to do the work? I mean, if he says okay, I'll do it, and he doesn't do it for a year or two, you know, 
Uh, I mean, isn't there like a time limit? There would be a time limit. I don't I don't know Alabama law and I can't speak to your specific issue. But my recommendation, whenever there's a dispute with the neighbors, give him give him some time. If he said he's going to do it, you know, what one thing you could ask is what if I go ahead and get the contractor? I'll I'll get a couple of estimates. I'll present them to you, neighbor, and um, you agree to pay them, and we'll put something in writing that you agree to pay, and that's going to protect you the most, is to have some kind of written agreement with your neighbor that they agree to pay, and that's going to put you in the best position if they don't if they don't follow through because you got a writing a written agreement that says they're going to take care of it. Um, you you're doing the. You know, and that, that's I, I always feel like the best best things are not to go to court if you can help it. And most most disputes can be resolved. Thank you, Joseph. We appreciate you calling in. Oh, yeah. God bless everybody. And they, there's another hurricane coming. So it's not over yet, folks. So uh, keep make sure you uh, have all your ducks in a row or your limbs cut or whatever you need to do to protect your home and family from hurricanes. Uh, Jim, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Good morning. Um, I'm glad for, uh, to hear the topic today. I had a question about the constitutional provision that allows for public initiatives. Uh, there's some controversy in the news about whether that constitutional provision, which requires 20, no more than 20 percent of the signatures to come from a single congressional district, um, creates an impossible situation with now four congressional districts instead of five. You can never have more than 80 percent of the necessary signatures. I've, I've always been under the impression that the law doesn't like to create absurdities, although, you know, I guess uh, I guess um, Dickens said, you know, well, sir, if that be the law, then the law is a ass, a idiot. But uh, that, that that aside, um, I'd like to hear Dean Gershon's uh, thoughts on interpretation of that particular constitutional provision as creating an impossibility. Well, Jim, thank you for your question. I agree with you. The law doesn't like absurdities, and and when something is impossible, really, that that's incumbent upon us, uh, you know, either the legislature or uh, the people to change that law to make sure that it now makes sense. I think when you put percentages like that in, in a law based on, um, you know, a, a past uh, you know, a past knowledge, and then that changes so that those percentages can't be reached, uh, it's time to change the law. And I think you're absolutely right about that. I think a court could interpret it in a way that it would make sense. Uh, there's clearly an ambiguity in the law. Uh, and uh, but you know, hopefully we can get that resolved because um, I think everybody agrees that it just doesn't make sense as it's as it's sit, as it sits now. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for your thoughts. I, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. We appreciate you calling in. Ooh, I'm going to take the last uh, silly state law. In 2017, New Hampshire passed an anti-homicide law, which you would think it's good. We, we're against homicide. And it defined a 20-week fetus as a person. And, but, and then it clarified that the law did not apply to pregnant women who might need an abortion. But the legislators then had to amend the law because its language would have permitted pregnant women to commit murder on anybody. 
So, you know, sometimes you, you have an intention on a law, but uh, once, you know, everyone, I guess, what is it, crowdsourcing, uh, and everybody starts thinking about it, you might have to decide, oh, wait, 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 that's not what we intended. We need to go back and get that right. We're going to continue our discussion of the importance of language in statutes. Now, did you have a middle school government class and learn about the states that have two legislative houses and who doesn't? I'm going to remind you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. is in legal terms now not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live if you've missed any of our program you can listen to the whole show on our website inlegalterms.mpbonline.org it's also available on the mpb public media app as are all our local shows i'm liz gill here with professor richard gershon from the university of mississippi school of law so within the united states Nebraska is the only state with a unicameral legislature. After a statewide vote, it had been bicameral, two houses, and it moved to unicameral in 1937. And the reason I mention that is because we are talking about the language of statutes today. And that's going to take us to our our next segment. How is the role of the legislature different from the role of courts when we're talking about uh, statutes? Well, the legislature is the the body, whether it's at the federal level, because the federal constitution gives Congress the authority to enact laws. And at the legislature, the state is is the uh, body that enacts laws and so they enact statutes and those statutes are presumed to be valid and constitutional we talked about absurdity uh, in the last segment and sometimes they they are found to be not uh, too too vague or impossible to enforce and therefore uh, not valid law but we presume that they're they're uh, constitutional and legal and then the courts though have to interpret the the statutes and sometimes that's because there are words in a statute that need interpretation. I'm going, to throw, I'm going to throw out a tax one because, well, you know, why not? Um, you know, there's a, a statute, a federal tax statute that says that gifts are not part of income. 
which should make people happy because if you've gotten birthday presents, you, you probably didn't report those on your tax return, but that was okay uh, because Section 102 of the Internal Revenue Code says a gift is not gross income. The, but then the U.S. Supreme Court had to provide a definition of gift for purposes of the tax code because there really was no definition that the Congress gave. So that's where the court had to step in and say, well, a gift has to be something that arises from a detached and disinterested generosity. So it can't just be, uh, you know, like uh, if I do, uh, I send business to a Cadillac dealer and that Cadillac dealer gives me a car as a thank you, that's more of a tip and that's more, more like compensation for my services. That's not a gift. Uh, and so uh, we're really talking about transfers between family members, but, but that's where the court had to get involved was because uh, at that time, um, there was no real definition of what that term gift meant. And is this where you can get into the, with the Supreme Court justices, if someone is an originalist or not? Yeah, we talk about the fact that, you know, and that a lot of times is interpretation of the Constitution, but it's also interpretation of the, of the statute. Can, we don't want courts reading uh, language into a statute that's not there. Uh, we don't want anyone. We don't want the governor reading uh, language into a statute who's not there. We don't want public officials doing that. That, if You know, the, the legislature gets to make the law. You know, I always tell my tax classes, you know, write down what I'm, I'm telling you if you want to, but I'm not the law. I don't make tax law. Congress does. So you have to start by reading the statute because that's the original source for the law. Uh, now, in addition to statutes, there are regulations, especially at the federal level, that, that support those statutes. And they are, like, for example, the Treasury Department does regulations to um, enhance our understanding of the tax code. Those usually do not rise to the level of law, though. They're just considered um, secondary authorities, you know, uh, 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 interpretation uh, by the Treasury Department. They know what they're doing, typically, so they're, it's pretty good interpretation. But unless Congress authorizes the Treasury Department to, to make regulations that have the authority of statute, those things are not law either. So for in laws in a state, you would first assume that the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of a state is the highest law. And then if they make a statute, I guess a statute would be different from a constitutional amendment. That's correct. Uh, constitutional, the Constitution kind of sets forth the parameters and limits what the government can do. So, for example, the, the state of Mississippi or the federal government cannot make a law uh, limiting our right to practice religion, or to, or to, to our beliefs, really. They can, I get, in a way, they can limit practice because, you know, if my, if my practice is to uh, engage in illegal drugs, if that's my, you know, personal religious belief, there are limitations on my practice, but there's not limitation. Uh, they can't put a limitation on my belief, uh, you know, uh, so that kind of thing. So we look at, for example, the Bill of Rights will limit what Congress can do uh, because it says Congress shall not. And so you know, then within those parameters, Congress adopts legislation as long as it doesn't violate those constitutional provisions that limit uh, its ability to act. And so that would be the difference. If we amend the Constitution, uh, you know, that, takes, that, that takes a lot more than just a legislature uh, from a particular state being involved. Um, so, uh, you know, if we, if, we, if we look at that, I mean, I, I think when you think about legislation, 
uh, you know, we think about um, is within the parameters of the Constitution, legislation that is presumed to be constitutional. But if it, if it, if, if the state of Mississippi passes a law that is in violation of our uh, rights under the uh, Bill of Rights or under the Mississippi Constitution, that law will be unconstitutional, and a court will decide that uh, that way. So, uh, you know, but, but, but that's, so that's part of it. So when we look at language then, where courts come in, and we talk, we talk about originalism, courts should interpret the language in a way that makes sense within the statute. They shouldn't add terms to the statute. So when the, when the, when the United States Supreme Court interpreted what a gift was for, for income tax purposes, um, you know, Congress simply said gifts are not gross income. But I think when looking at the legislative history behind that uh, legislation, which the court can do, it was pretty clear that Congress was talking about mainly transfers between family members and friends, you know, things like uh, holiday presents, Christmas presents, birthday presents, those kinds of things are not income. But then again, we have to think about the fact that there's something called the gift tax, which is a whole different system where a you know if somebody makes gives makes uh, transfers wealth to another person they could be subject to a toll on the ability to transfer that wealth that's a whole other system so we have to read each statute in the context of what that statute's trying to accomplish professor gershon let's clarify our language how are statutes uh, different from regulations and laws are are they all laws you know we talked about what an amendment to a, the constitution is different from a statute but what about administrative regulations administrative regulations uh, come and they have to go through a process uh, and so for example at the federal level there has to be a period of notice and comment so they will come out as proposed regulations uh, and and people will have a chance to make comments on those regulations, and then they'll be issued as final regulations at a point where um, they've received enough comment, and uh, and uh, the department, whoever it is, so if it was the uh, Department of Education, issues regulations, obviously, uh, you know, on education law, um, and the uh, Treasury Department issues regulations on tax law. Those regulations, then, once they become final. You do have a lot of uh, impact. I mean, if I'm a court and I and the Treasury is interpreting a statute one way, and you know the the taxpayer is interpreting it a different way, I'm, I'm going to probably err on the side of the the uh, Treasury Department because they're the experts in uh, working with Congress and also in enacting these regulations. Regulations can be invalid, and and the one thing about regulations that I always caution my students is. It takes time to issue regulations. So, you know, we had a new tax act in, in uh, 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, there were any regulations that were that were in still in in place at that time were regulating old law because the Treasury Department had to wait until that statute came out uh, until they worked with it a little bit until they got notice and comment to issue new regulations. So regulations can lag behind statutes, and that that can be problematic. Uh, and interpret statutes that are no longer there. So in, in looking at you know, regulations, it's, we need to be careful to make sure the regulation that we're dealing with is up to date. 
We are talking about the language in statutes. And for our next segment, you might do well to pull from the recesses of your memory how to diagram a sentence. Do you even know what that is? I did ask my 20-year-old, 20-something. She did learn diagramming in high school. We're going to touch on how that applies to laws. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. Lots of different podcasting platforms. I happen to use Podcast Addict, but there's lots of different ones. I downloaded it to my phone and I touched the plus. Then that takes me to a page you can search for podcasts or browse on topic or a specific word. But you can also type in the actual name. I typed in in legal terms and it brings up our show. And then I'm able to touch the photo of our podcast and subscribe. And then I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up. Now, sometime in the middle 1800s, Educators taught students how to diagram a sentence. So in essence, you take a sentence and you kind of draw a picture with it to help the student understand the parts of a sentence. And uh, they are still teaching this, or at least they were teaching it about 10 years ago. And it would help some of our people in government if they learned to diagram a sentence so that they would know you know what the verb is and and what uh what things refer to and the definitions of what a word is um professor richard gershon you are at the university of mississippi school of law so the mississippi teacher strike statute this is something that came into prominence lately um where it, you know that it all hung on the definition of a word uh, tell us a little bit about that Right, and I, I think you know we, we talk about the fact. I think people use that term "strike," uh, and there's a kind of a general usage of the term "strike." But you and I can't define the word "strike" as applied by the statute. Uh, particular teachers can't apply the words define the word "strike" as applied by that statute. Uh, it, it actually has a, a meaning uh, given by the legislature, uh, and 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 I think that's the part that. Uh, has been missed by the media. I've heard interviews about this, and, and it almost as a as someone who um, 
teacher stretch during construction, it really bothered me that there was a, that basically we, when we heard uh, the public official's position on you know a teacher striking, that public official was only referring to part of the statute and not the whole thing. Yeah, let, let's back up. Uh, so uh, folks who may not be familiar with it, uh, there was a teacher at the University of Mississippi, and he did not come to work uh, one day. You, you take the story on from there. I told, you know, that was, uh, there was a national scholar strike um, to bring attention to uh, social justice issues, uh, and uh, we have a sociology professor. That's kind of what he teaches anyway. Um, and by the way, we're all recording our classes and teaching you know, a lot of things remotely, so he had already recorded classes, but wanted to use this as an opportunity uh, for his students to learn something about the strike. So he participated, although he did have uh, his teaching content available, but, he, but it was called a strike. Uh, and the state auditor, uh, looked at the Mississippi statute and said, you know, strikes by teachers, uh, you, you know, you can be fired. Uh, you can, and so, uh, but, but the legislature had a specific type of strike, a narrow type of strike in mind. Uh, and so the auditor asked that this, this particular professor be fired. But he, in doing that, only looked at the first part of the statute, which says strike means a concerted failure to report for duty a willful absent from one's position, the stoppage of work, deliberate slowing down of work, or the withholding and whole or part of the full, faithful, and proper performance of the duties of employment. And if you stop right there, then maybe that was a strike. But the important part of the statute and what, what, what the legislature, the state legislature was trying to do was limit this by defining strike as a work stoppage, but for the purposes of inducing influencing or coercing a change in conditions, um, compensation, rights, privileges, or obligations of public employment. So that's a strike for that purpose is a labor strike uh, and not one for social justice and not uh, a hunger strike and not, um, and not you know, anything like, like that. I mean, so I think it's very important that we don't leave that language out. And, I, and I'm, I'm kind of confounded that you know, I've heard a lot of interviews, a lot of interviews where you know the discussion was about um, you know about uh, the statute, a lot of interviews where there's no mention of that for the purposes of uh, changing the work conditions or uh, you know getting more compensation, which is really what the legislature had in mind when they uh, dealt with this the strike issue. Yeah, that's when you need to remember a strike is not a strike is not a strike, and the legislator le legislative issue uh, their their statute had specific strike in mind when they put that word in there, and by all accounts, this teacher's not coming into work was a different kind of strike. It would be if I were to say I'm engaged in a hunger strike, you know, that's that's not what the statute deals with. And so I can't I can't I can't define the word strike. Uh, a public official can't define the word strike. The only the only people who can define the word strike is the Mississippi legislature. And they've done that in the statute. And they've done that very narrowly because it was really intended to stop uh, work stoppages by teachers 
to try to get more compensation, frankly. So, Professor Gershon, uh, this is why it's so important for legislators. You know, I I know a lot of lay people, when they think about the tax code, they just roll their eyes. Or if you think about reading laws, you might get frustrated because they're so wordy and if then and why nots and if this, then this, then that, then the other. But if you aren't that specific, Anybody could make the law mean whatever they wanted it to mean. Well, especially if you only read part of the statute. I mean, you got to read the whole thing. And, and that language in a statute like the, the Mississippi strike statute that says for, the, you know, strike means, and they're defining strike for the purposes of this particular thing. So that's going to be a more narrow definition of, of a strike than maybe we use in, in general terminology. And so it's very important that for the purposes of you see it a lot in legislation, right? And in tax law, they, they define things as, you know, uh, for the purposes of this section, here's what something means. I always, I always laugh because there's a, uh, a tax law that deals with uh, convention travel and you're, you're limited in a deduction for travel in a convention to a convention outside the North American area. And I always learned in geography what North, the North American area was, but but Congress defines the North American area in a much more limited way as just Canada, United States, Mexico. It does not include the Caribbean, but it does include the Marshall Islands. So, you know, um, which, so, there, so, you know, that when we look at that, you can't just take your, your common knowledge into a statute and say, OK, well, I know what that is, because there was a purpose behind, for example, the Mississippi teacher strike statute that was very specific. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't it wasn't about hunger strikes or social justice strikes or anything like that. Um, you know, and uh, and so it was it, to, to be fired uh, for violation of the statute. You would have to be trying to, again, purposes of inducing, influencing, coercing a change in the conditions, compensation, rights, privileges or obligations of public employment. Right. And then, you know, um, Really, the statute goes on to say, provided, however, nothing here and shall limit or impair the right of any certified teacher to express or communicate a complaint or opinion on any matter related to the conditions of public employment, so long as the same is not de- uh, designed and does not interfere with the, with the duties of employment. So, uh, you know, it, it seems clear that the legislature was simply saying, we don't want to, we don't want to disrupt, uh, you know, schools uh, while our teachers try to, you know, get more money, um, you know, in, in that process or change their conditions in that process. Let's go back to our civics lesson and learn about another one state oddity. This one is a little closer to home or it might be your home. That's next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, remember you can listen to our show three different ways. The website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, and it's available as a podcast. Uh, Goodness gracious, you can get podcasts on your phone. You can get them on your smart device, uh, like your Amelia uh, speaker, you can get it through. If you have a smart TV, you can get it through apps on TV. Lots of different ways you can listen to our show. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Up next at 11 a.m. is our Tuesday Southern Remedy show, relatively speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress. We've gone through some uh, civics and uh, uh, language. Uh, classes, and now I'm going to go back to a civics. 49 states base their interpretation of law on what is referred to as common law. Uh, Louisiana derives from the Napoleonic Code. Louisiana law and civil law in general can allow for more individual judges' interpretation of the law to hold sway over more objective or historical understanding of the law. So, Professor Gershon, uh, when courts interpret statutes, uh, what are how 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 do courts interpret statutes? Well, they use something. Actually, they use something called the canons of construction. But they really, the best way to call those are really rules of thumb that they apply. Uh, and you know, it's a, it's a reasoned approach to interpretation of the statute. And the first thing is, um, we start off with the idea that that when legislation and case law conflict, courts generally presume that legislation takes precedence because it really is. Uh, up to the legislature to make the law and for the courts to interpret the law. Uh, and then once they have, once they interpret the law a certain way, uh, then that becomes part of the common law. So that, that you know, if I, if I have a, if a, if a case in Mississippi interpreted one, a Mississippi statute a certain way, then I, I would assume that that case was correct going forward, if it, especially if it came from the Mississippi Supreme Court, and I would uh, have to apply the statute the same way according to that court's terms um, under common law. So that, you know, it's once we have that interpretation, so, you know, now gift, because the United States Supreme Court interpreted gift a certain way for the Internal Revenue Code, that's how we've interpreted it since then. Um, they, you know, statutes, uh, you know, when you look at a statute, um, if there's a word like that, like gift, the court's going to look at common usage of a word, case law, dictionaries, parallel reasoning. Punctuation is real important in statutes. Um, I think it's really important for people to understand the difference between the disjunctive and the conjunctive, which is you know, if, if a statute says in order to apply, you must have A and B. Well, that means you got to have both or the statute doesn't apply. If it says A or B, then you need either. And while that seems obvious, sometimes I think that's hard, hard for people to, to really work through. Uh, and so, so if, you have, if you have to have A and B for the statute to apply, 
you, you, the statute doesn't apply if you either don't have A or don't have B, either one. Which just so, goes uh, to prove that uh, the the degree, you, the bachelor's degree you get before going to law school or the degree that someone who runs for a, a legislative seat or a Senate seat, sometimes it might be good to have a, a philosophy major or have a English major because, you know, knowing these specific grammar rules can make all the difference in the world. Exactly. And, you know, we want uh, statutes that are written clearly and unambiguously by our legislature. I, I, my own bias, and this is a bias, is that we need more lawyers in the legislature for that reason. I mean, our students are trained to understand how to read a statute and, and understand some of the nuance of statute and, and how to write that, that poetry that is statutory. And I'm not sure, you know, if the legislature, this is with all due respect, I mean, if, they're, if they've never dealt with statutory language in this way, it, you know, it's easy to write a statute that then becomes ambigu ambiguous or leaves out uh, an exception they meant to put in. Um, you know, so it, it's real. I think that's really important. And you're right. I think, think that's extremely important to have that that background, if, if all possible. Um, you know, when we look at uh, the language, I mean, the statutes need to be internally consistent. So a particular section of the statute should not be inconsistent with the rest of the statute. That's just going to cause confusion uh, for the people who have to uh, apply that statute. Uh, so we got to be. Uh, we hope that uh, the statutes are very carefully drafted, um, and that's not always the case. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I teach tax law, and um, sometimes tax sections are very hurriedly drafted, and they need to go through a process of technical correction. There's something called a Technical Corrections Act that fixes problems when they occur in, in uh, any statute. Well, when they're crafting laws, do they ever want to specifically have a language that could apply to what if in the future? Yeah, yes, and I do think they, they do try to take into account things change, you know, and that's um, uh, but. But sometimes that's why it's good to, to rethink statutes, you know, as, as times change uh, and, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, types of uh, investment uh, changes. And then the, the statutes that relate to securities law had to change uh, because the original securities laws really didn't take into account all the different ways that, that we can invest. So, yes, I mean, I think Congress has to always be thinking forward. And statutes do not typically apply retroactively. They apply going forward. So, you know, I, I can't be held criminally liable for something that was not a crime uh, when I committed it two years ago, and, and now uh, the legislature decides to make that a crime. So statutes always apply forward um, unless they specifically say they, they apply retroactively. Um, and that's uh, usually with criminal statutes that won't happen. Uh, with uh, case law, though, when, because cases are interpreting what the law was at the time this case arose, the, the case law does relate back uh, to the beginning of that case, and so does apply more retroactively. So, that, so the, the, the application is really different uh, one, in the way that we apply case law. Go ahead. One thing I wish uh, lawmakers would and uh, uh, executive departments would take into consideration when they're putting thresholds, when they're putting fees or fines or levels, 
you know, a hundred dollars in 1920 is going to be different than a hundred dollars in 2020. And I wish there was a better way that statutes had, you know, a part, you know, I, I like it if it's part of the, you know, level of poverty or, you know, some percentage of something that stays current with the times cost of living a, index or something like that. And that's a really good point. And some things do, you know, some things do. And, and there are, um, for example, the, the federal uh, tax brackets are indexed for inflation. Uh, so they started building that in. That wasn't always true. Uh, and, and I think that's a better, a better way to approach it because, you know, if, if there's bad, bad inflation, my dollar uh, is still a dollar, but it's not going to buy as much. And therefore, uh, should not be taxed at, at you know uh, the same rate necessarily, um, and so they they need to uh, think about inflation and they do. So Congress has started doing that, uh, you know, and I, it's, I'm glad to see that. But you know, that's a way to build in some flexibility. Um, now with criminal statutes, it's we have really, one minute left. Oh, so you, you no no you 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 got this. We got one minute left for you to uh, uh, give us advice about statutes. Well, just one more thought is, you know, courts have to think about whether it's a criminal statute or, or a civil statute. And if it's a criminal statute, if there's an ambiguity, they're going to construe that ambiguity in favor of the defendant, which, which, is, which is fairer. So sometimes people say, well, that, that person got off on a technicality. No, the law was not clear uh, that that law applied to that particular defendant. And that's a, that's a signal to the legislature to go back and amend that law. So that's, you know, that that's, I think, an important canon uh, in, in that respect. But um, then getting legislatures but, to go back and agree on a law, sometimes that takes a lot of effort. It does. It does. But we need them to work together. We uh, that's do. That's really important uh, for all of us. Work, work together. Maybe that's going to be the, the hallmark of uh, 2021 because, man, we need to get finished with 2020 right quick. <laughs> Thank you, yes, Professor Gershon, for being on our show today and giving us these wonderful pearls to think about. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, we are so glad that you have been listening to In Legal Terms with us. We appreciate Jay White and Java Chapman. They do a lot around here. They're kind of running around in the background. Uh, if, if we get a webcam one day, maybe you'll be able to see what all they're up to. But it, it takes a team to pull this all together. And so for the team of Professor Richard Gershon, who does host from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm team member Liz Gill, and we hope you'll join us again next Tuesday for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.